Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, I think that um, most of you would probably not disagree with me if I said that today in our world, in our nation, in our culture, we are experiencing something of a crisis of authority. It's like we used to know who we could trust. We used to know who was uh, a trustworthy, authoritative figure in our culture, but we seem to have lost that. I mean, I think there was a time when we trusted our, our politicians, the presidents, those in government, but not anymore. Um, There used to be a time when we would trust media and news reports, but we've heard enough fake news that um, we'd probably say, no, we we don't trust them anymore. Uh, Our police forces used to have respect in our communities, but because of various incidents, um, police are not always trusted as figures of authority anymore. We used to even trust priests and pastors. And then you hear a report like what came out of the Southern Baptist Commission here this past week about sex abuse in the church and how it's been covered up all these years. And not even pastors or priests or clergy are trusted anymore. And so it leaves us with this question in our current day and age, who is it who has proper authority and who can be trusted with authority? When we see the abuse of authority, that's why you see people put on the back of their cars a bumper sticker that says, question authority, or as the comedian George Carlin said, destroy authority. That's the way some of us feel because of the abuses of authority. But here's what happens. When authoritative standards disappear, very often what results is chaos, I mean, just to, you know, imagine a classroom of kids and the teacher walks away and that teacher is gone for three or four or five minutes. What generally ensues? <laughs> Chaos in the classroom. Why? Because the authority figure has disappeared. And so when a nation, when a culture loses its sense of authority, often it descends into chaos. And I think all of you would probably agree that things feel chaotic in our world. Here's what happens when we lose a sense of external authority. What everybody does for authority is they turn inwardly. They look for themselves. They look to their own opinions as the final authority. And what you have is a culture with a multitude of different authoritative standards all competing with one another. And that results in chaos. There's a book that was written years ago, um, Day America Told the Truth. The overwhelming majority of people said in this kind of survey that they and nobody else determine what is and what isn't moral in their lives. They base their decisions on their own experience, even on their own daily whims. It's however they feel in the moment on a particular day, that becomes the authority. That's the way many people live in our world today. Let me ask you today, who is your final authority? Who do you look to to make sense of things in this world and in your life? The Gospels in the Bible present to us an alternative to all of these possible authoritative sources that I've mentioned. The Gospels present to us one who has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's Jesus of Nazareth, the servant king that we are exploring, studying, looking at here in the gospel 
of Mark. So <clears throat> that's what this passage is about that we're about to look at here. These verses 21 to 31 in chapter 1, the authority of Jesus, Jesus and authority, I'm calling this. So if you're able to stand, why don't you do that now and let me read these verses to us. When we're going through a book of the Bible, what we do is we just pick up where we left off last week. So you might remember last week that we saw the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the priorities that he said and the very first things he did. He battled Satan in the wilderness, he announced the arrival of the kingdom, and he called disciples to himself. Those are the three things he saw. That's how his ministry started, and now we see him getting busy doing various things related to his authority. So Mark 1, 21 to 31, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, <clears throat> he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Holy Spirit, we're calling out to you to open our eyes, soften our hearts, to receive, see, and believe in the wonderful things that we find in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Jesus and authority. We're going to see Jesus' authority demonstrated for us here today in three ways. And the first is this, we see Jesus' authority in his teaching, in the way that he teaches. So you see here, verse 21, at the very beginning, they went into Capernaum. So they, that's Jesus, with the four disciples that he called, remember from last week, that would be Andrew, Simon, James, and John. So they come into Capernaum. Now, um, let me just kind of show you, you're going to see these cities and regions mentioned as we go throughout the book of Mark. Um, yeah, I apologize. That's probably a little too small for you guys to see some of the writing there, but this is a map of the nation of Israel. And um, so you'll see up here is Capernaum. So this is right up on kind of the northwest uh, side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, right below here is Nazareth. And so Jesus grew up in Nazareth. You might remember from last week that he came into Nazareth, and now has gone from Nazareth to Capernaum. So uh, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. This is Bethlehem down here. And Bethlehem, you'll notice, is not far from Jerusalem, which is right here. But for much of the early part of the book of Mark, 
Jesus' ministry is up here in Galilee. And then you'll notice Samaria. He'll come through Samaria. Um, all that he's doing here is preparing to eventually make the journey to Jerusalem where a cross awaits him. And so that's what Mark is all about, just showing Jesus, making his way eventually to Jerusalem. But here's where it's all beginning. Grows up in Nazareth, goes to Capernaum. Capernaum is the place, kind of a headquarters for his ministry. In fact, um, we find out uh, in another gospel that Jesus actually lived there for a while. So Jesus lives in Capernaum, and um, this is where his, uh, the very beginning stages of his ministry begin. Uh, Capernaum, a pretty important town at the time, about 10,000 people, which would have been a fairly sizable city for that day and age. And so they enter Capernaum, verse 21, and it says immediately, and so there's that word again, it just shows up over and over in the gospel of Mark. It's like Mark is, again, just trying to tell us that things are moving fast here, that Jesus is busy. He wants us to see one event happening after another. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. So what is a synagogue? Sometimes we get confused when we hear synagogue because we also hear words like tabernacle and we hear words like temple. And so what's the difference? (laughs) Well, the tabernacle was the temporary place where the Israelites worshiped after the exodus You'll see that in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, the tabernacle is set up and it's kind of moving along as they travel from place to place. Tabernacle is way before this time. The temple is a place that existed here in Jerusalem, and so Jews would very often make their pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. A synagogue is more like kind of like a local church in some ways. A synagogue was like a community center. They would be in various cities throughout Israel. Uh, kind of like a, kind of an auditorium or assembly hall, and people would gather, there would be lectures, there would be speaking, there would be prayer, there would be study, and these synagogues would be run by the local priests who would oversee what was going on in the synagogues. And uh, the priests didn't always, however, function as the preachers. So very often what would happen is guests would come in and be invited to speak, and that seems to be what's happening here, it suggests that Jesus, although he didn't have any formal training, probably had some kind of reputation as a teacher, and so the priests invited him to come in, and he begins teaching in the synagogue. And by the way, um, there was an archaeological dig in 1969 in this area of the world, and there was uncovered a kind of like a slab, like a foundation or a floor uh, deep in the ground that was underneath another synagogue. The top synagogue was dated in the 4th century, but archaeologists believe that the bottom floor was dated to the 1st century and was likely the floor of a synagogue. And so archaeologists believe that they have actually discovered the floor of this very synagogue that we're reading about here in Mark chapter 1. So Mark goes into, the, or excuse me, Jesus goes into the synagogue, and we look back to verse 21, and we see that he <clears throat> was teaching. He begins to teach, and the response to his teaching is, in verse 22, astonishment. They were astonished. The, the word there for astonished could actually mean shocked. They were shocked by what they were hearing. They were thunderstruck. They were just overwhelmed with the way Jesus was teaching and the things that he was saying. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. 
um, probably maybe not often here at New Life, but um, uh, perhaps you've had that experience somewhere. Uh, I remember Mary and I had that experience when we went to a church called College Park Baptist Church down in Indianapolis, and uh, Kimber Kaufman was the guy preaching, and I, I just remember having an experience very similar to this. I was just astonished at the way this man preached at the, 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 the force, the strength, the, the, the power that he brought to the pulpit as he opened up the Scriptures. He preached as one with authority. How much more must it have been that kind of experience when we see Jesus, the Son of God, preaching in that way? And that's exactly what is said here. What got their attention so much, verse 22, as he taught them as one who had authority. I, I don't think this is necessarily a reference to Jesus' charisma necessarily or personality, but it was the way he was speaking, the things that he would say. In fact, we get a clue as to what they mean by authority because there's a contrast here. He taught as one with authority, not as the scribes. There was something different about Jesus' teaching from the way the scribes were teaching. So who are the scribes? Well, the scribes were the the, the scholars of the day, the, the academics of the day, the ones who would interpret the Scriptures. They were the ones regarding as having the final word on the interpretation of the Bible. Uh, in fact, their opinions were so highly regarded that in some cases they were considered to be equally authoritative to the writings of the Scriptures themselves. But there was something about the way the scribes taught, and, and it was this. When the scribes taught, they were always quoting somebody else, that their authority was always derived, that they were always referring to a rabbi or another scholar or some other interpreter. They were always dependent on somebody else for their own authority. They didn't have authority in themselves. And actually, it's kind of very similar to what goes on with any preacher of the Scriptures. I mean, as I stand up here and preach to you, I, I don't have authority inherent in myself. My authority is directly dependent upon the authority of the Word of God that I'm preaching to you. The authority comes from the Scriptures, not from me. And so the scribes were in kind of a similar situation. But see, Jesus comes in, and His authority is very different. He doesn't have to refer to anybody else. His authority is not derived his authority is inherent in himself. He's not dependent on any other outside source. It's like in the book of Matthew, maybe you remember where he says to the disciples, he says, you have heard it was said, and then he'd quote, and then he'd say, but I say to you this. And Jesus is setting up a contrast there. He's saying, you've heard this said over here, but now I, I'm not referring to anybody else but, but myself here. Here's what I say. It's like Jesus is saying, what I'm about to tell you is the final word on the matter. Because I have authority like nobody else. Jesus gets the last word on everything. And that's what Mark is trying to show us here. This, this authority that Jesus had. Imagine doing a term paper in school and, uh, you know, you write this term paper and you include no footnotes and no endnotes. And there's no bibliography. <laughs> you know, you're writing on some scientific or historical event. You just write your thoughts and hand it in the teacher. And the teacher says, you know, you really need to back up what you say. You know, I need to see where you got this information. I need to see your footnotes and your endnotes. And you say, I don't need to do that. 
because I am the final authority on this subject. <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't go over too well probably with your teacher or professor, but it goes over just fine with Jesus because He is the final authority. That's the authority that, that He is teaching here, the authority that He's bringing. Friends, in a, in a culture where we have this crisis of authority and you don't know who to trust and you don't know where to look, I'm telling you, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus' words. Look to His teaching. Look to what He has to say. You can trust what He says. His words never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word is eternal truth. It is not subject to the findings of science or popular opinion or your personal feelings. His teachings is sovereign and reigns over all these things. Now, of course, it's true that Jesus does not address every single issue that we might like him to address, but he addresses the issues that are most important for you to know about, like what's going to happen to you after you die, what's going to happen in the next life, how to live in this life. He gives you direction, authoritative teaching on how to respond to your enemies, how to deal with your money how to think through issues of sexuality and gender. Jesus speaks with authority in all of these things. His words revive the soul. They enlighten the eyes. They rejoice the heart. You don't have to live this life wondering, who do I look to? Who can make sense of everything? Jesus can. Remember the end of John chapter 6? Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says some things that, that are hard, and so sometimes Jesus' teachings are hard. Sometimes he says things we don't necessarily like. That happened in the first century, too, when Jesus was teaching. A lot of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Like, I don't agree with this. And they left. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, what other authority is there? Where else can we go? There is no authority higher than that of Jesus. And so we see that in his teaching. So the second thing to consider is Jesus' authority over demons. We see Jesus' authority in his words, but we see his authority also in his works, the things that he does. So verse 23 Immediately, there's that word again, immediately, as Jesus is in the synagogue here with his disciples during the teaching time, I don't know if this guy came in from the outside or maybe he was just stood up in the middle of the room, I don't know, but immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. It's a man with some kind of demonic oppression or demonic um, possession here. And um, there's this immediate now confrontation between Jesus and the Spirit. And the Spirit cries out, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now, why might they ask that question? They, he, us, it says here, plural, maybe a number of demons here. Demons referred to singular and plural here. Why would the, the demons say, have you come to destroy us? A little review from the book of Genesis that we looked at recently. Do you remember what I kept saying over and over again? Genesis 3.15, the, 
the promise was that there was going to become a descendant from the woman who was going to do what? Crush the head of the serpent. That was the promise at the very beginning. The Messiah, when he comes, he's going to destroy the work of the devil. It seems like these demons know that. They're aware of this promise, and they know when the Messiah comes, he comes to destroy us. And so they say, have you come to destroy us? And then they go on, and they say, he says, I know who you are, Jesus, the Holy One of God. You see the contrast there. This is an unclean spirit. Jesus is the Holy One of God. They are at loggerheads here. And what we see here is something very fascinating, and that is that the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. Because all through the book of Mark, the question that is going to be raised, and I mentioned this a few Sundays ago, the question that's always raised is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who gets it? Who understands? Who has eyes to see? And you see throughout Mark, people getting it wrong over and over again. The demons get it right before anybody. This is an absolutely accurate identification of who Jesus is. He's from Nazareth. He's the man who is the Holy Son of God, the Divine One as well. Pretty good theology on behalf of the demons. But do you think the demons are saved? I don't think so. I mean, what we got here is an example of how you can know a lot of things and know right answers and not be saved. You can know that Jesus is the Son of God and not be saved. You can know certain theological details and not be saved. This demon is not going to heaven. (laughs) It's not just knowledge, it's not just intellect that makes a Christian. It's the person who has come to be sorrowful over his or her sins, a person who looks at Jesus as lovely and altogether desirable. It's the person who has entrusted himself or herself to this Savior for eternal life. It's more than knowledge. It's not, just, it's not less than knowledge. It is important to know who He is, but it's more than that as well. And so we, we see this here as the demon identifies Jesus. Now, one question that might come to your mind here is, now, wait a minute. Are you really telling me that we believe in demons? What, we like believe in haunted houses, stuff like that, and ghosts? Is that what you're saying? We, do we believe in, in demons? Some people will look at a passage like this and say, well, no, no, it's not really demons. Um, this man probably had some kind of mental illness or some kind of psychosis, and they just labeled it demonic possession because they didn't know any better. He's, he's, he's just sick. That's all. But if you skip down to verse 34, I didn't read this earlier, but look at verse 34. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So there's a distinction that the people are clearly seeing between disease and demon possession. So there must be a distinction in their minds. I don't think we can just label this illness. There's some kind of unclean spirit. There's some kind of demonic force at work here. And friends, as today, well, this past week, as we have been reflecting upon what happened in Texas, where a kid goes into a school and shoots 19 children, it is really hard to deny that the forces of evil aren't at work. I mean, there might be a lot of secondary explanations, gun laws, mental illness, maybe all that's going on. I'm not denying that. I'm not saying the devil made me do it. I'm not trying to get the guy off the hook. I'm just saying evil forces are at work in our world. How can you, not, how can you deny that? 
when something as atrocious and horrible and heartbreaking as that happens. There's a guy named Andrew Del Banco. He wrote a book um, called The Death of Satan. Uh, the subtitle is How We Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And he makes this argument that um, you know, it, it minimizes evil to always attribute it to psychological or social conditioning. That it, it just makes it a mechanical thing. It, it removes the horror of evil to attribute it merely to natural causes. And I, this guy's not even writing from a Christian point of view. He identifies himself as a secularist, and yet he says a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil that we see everywhere and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. We can't make sense of it, is what he's saying. It's more than just a naturalistic cause. There's something deeper at work. And as Christians and believers in the Bible, we say, yeah, we, we know. We got the intellectual resources to cope with it because we got the Scriptures, revelation from God, who tells us that demons exist and there is evil in this world. So what does Jesus do? <clears throat> Verse 25, he looks at that demon, he rebukes him, and he says, be silent. In other words, shut up. Shut up, demon. Stop talking. And what happens? The demon convulses, cries out, verse 26, and comes out of him. Just comes out of him. That's all Jesus has to say. Be silent and come out. And the deed is done. <laughs> he doesn't have to wave a magic wand. He doesn't have to mix up a potion. He doesn't have to come up with some magical incantation. He doesn't have to perform some kind of a ritual. He doesn't have to call on a higher power. He just says the word, and it's done. The devil, the, the, devil, the demons, that they obey. They, they can do no other. Why is that? Because Jesus has all authority, even over the demons. And so they, they, they leave. And in fact, that's exactly what the people say, right? Verse 27, they're all amazed when they see that so that they question among themselves, saying, what is this? I mean, they can't believe it. A new teaching with authority. So the people are recognizing that there, there is authority here that I've never seen before. Authority that came through his teaching, and now we see his authority over demons. So friends, if we can agree on that, you know, that evil is prevalent, that that we have to deal with it. We, we see it in so many ways. We saw, saw it in Texas. That's true. We, we, we see it. it's in the church. I mean, that just disgusting report about churches covering up sexual abuse over the years. I mean, that's, that's evil. See the war in Ukraine. We hear about things happening there. And sometimes we can just become overwhelmed. It's just like, what resources do we have to deal with this? What are we going to do? Rely on, on the government? We're going to rely on our president? We're going to rely on Hollywood? Is Hollywood going to take care of this for us? Some NBA player going to come along and defeat the powers of evil? Legislation? Pass enough laws? And we'll get rid of evil? Is that what you're saying? Is that your hope? What's it going to be? Wait till 2024, we'll get somebody else in the White House. He'll take care of evil. She'll take care of evil. Really? That's a fool's wish. There's just nothing in this world that's going to 
bring down, conquer decisively the forces of evil. There's only one, and his name is Jesus. He's the one who has power over evil. He's the one to whom we can turn. He's the one we have to look to to handle the problem of evil in our world. So there's one other thing that we see. Jesus' authority is also shown to us in his authority over illness. So look down at verse 29. Immediately, (laughs) again, he leaves the synagogue and now he enters a house. So this is immediately, that is, it's happening on the same day. This is all happening on the Sabbath, by the way. So he leaves the synagogue, he enters this house of Simon and Andrew. So we met them last week. Remember, Simon is Peter. He's going to be renamed Peter. So Peter and Andrew, you could say. James and John there also, the four disciples that were first chosen. They're all there with Jesus. They go to Peter's house, and um, they. it's noted here that that Peter's, Simon's mother-in-law, lay ill with a fever. So one thing we conclude here, right, is that Peter was married. Um, this is the mother of Peter's wife. And she's sick. She's laying down, probably in bed. She has a fever. Maybe that sounds like it's not terribly serious, but it must have been a pretty, pretty high fever, perhaps a life-threatening fever. So she's, she's very ill. And uh, what we're seeing here is a, a contrast. This episode is contrasted to the episode that we just read about. So uh, you know, last time we heard about demon possession of a man, now we have a woman who is sick. Uh, in the demon possession uh, event, we have something very public in the synagogue. Now it's in, a, in, in the privacy of a home. Uh, in the synagogue, we saw kind of a dramatic event, this demon coming out, shrieking and crying out. And here it's a very kind of quiet event, just a, a woman lying in bed. And I think what Mark is trying to say to us is that Jesus' authority is displayed in all sorts of situations. There's no limits to what he can do or where he can do it. He does all kinds of things and meets the needs of all kinds of people. But again, we see Jesus' tremendous authority. What does he do? Verse 31, he just comes in, he just takes that woman by the hand and lifts her up, and the fever just leaves her, (laughs) just disappears, and, and she's healed. And notice Jesus doesn't say, well, okay, get lots of rest, drink lots of water, take some ibuprofen, don't do any heavy lifting. You know, you need time to heal and to get better. Don't push it too hard. He doesn't say that. And in fact, what we see is that she gets up and begins to serve them. It's like she's at 100% energy level immediately. All of her resources, all of her strength is back. This isn't a halfway healing. It's a full 100% recovery because of Jesus' authority over illness. Now, why is this here? this healing story, and we'll get to many healing stories here. <clears throat> is this here so that when you get a fever, you can just call to Jesus and, and he'll just get rid of your fever? You don't need to see a doctor, don't need to take medicine because Jesus is, is going to take away y- your illness? I mean, Jesus can take away our illnesses, and sometimes he does, but texts like this are abused sometimes, and people do not seek medical help because they just think Jesus is going to heal all their diseases immediately. I think that's a wrong reading of this passage. The reason that this, passage, <clears throat> that this passage is here, the reason that we're told about this healing is to demonstrate Jesus' authority. It shows that he has power over our bodies. He has power over everything. He has authority over every situation. And one day, 
when our bodies are raised from the dead, like Jesus' body was raised from the dead, then we will see his final authority over all illnesses and diseases. And we will rise up with perfectly healthy bodies, free of all ailments and all sickness. But we wait for the last resurrection for that to happen. In the meantime, we're seeing here a Savior who has authority, authority in everything that he teaches, in all of his words on moral and ethical issues. We see a Savior here who has authority over the forces of evil in this world, and we see a Savior who has authority even over our sicknesses. So what do we take away from this? Yes, it's true, authority is often abused. And so for some of you, as you've been hearing that word throughout this sermon, authority, 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 it might make you a little nervous because maybe you have been the recipient of the abuse of authority. Maybe you've seen authority not well used. You've seen authority used to oppress and to create injustice. We've seen it in our politicians. We've seen it in our police. We've seen it in our pastors. But you're not going to find that kind of use of authority in Jesus. He does not abuse his authority. In fact, let me show you what Jesus does ultimately with his authority. John chapter 10, Jesus speaking, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. That's how Jesus uses his authority to lay down his life for you and to raise it up again for your justification. That's no abuse of authority, friends. That's authority used in love, an authority used to serve, an authority used to save sinners, an authority used to give us the hope that one day all abuses of authority will be punished and the world will be made right. Jesus is the authority that you can trust. So bow your knee to him today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospels. Thank you for sending a great savior. Thank you for serving us in your kingship. Thank you for using your authority to lay down your life for us. God, help us, Lord, as we seek to submit all of our lives, all of our thinking, all of our actions to your authority. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.